everybody. Welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Dan and Bill. Yep, this time coming to you from, well, maybe the not-too-distant future, or maybe the present, for all we know. Today's tale is a rather cynical take on, well, a rather cynical take on a whole and bunch of Some would say realistic. <laughs> Perhaps that's what Realism makes it and so cynicism <laughs> are not too different. So what are we talking about? The story today is called The Marching Morons by Cyril M. Kornbluth. It was originally published in 1951 in Galaxy Magazine, and it's one of the stories that has been enshrined in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, specifically in Volume 2. So it didn't make the top 15, but it made the top 30. Yeah, it's a pretty popular story, and the themes in it have been picked up on, well, maybe not numerous times, but several times, both in book and in movie form. And as we discuss, you'll you'll probably see the references pretty quick. I think it's interesting that Kornbluth, who had written a story before called The Little Black Bag, where a device, a medical device from the future, winds up coming back to his present. And he wondered, well, what if I wrote a story about somebody from my present getting cast forward into the future somehow? And so there's a little bit of a time, whatever you call it, it's a time travel element, but a temporal displacement temporal. element. But there's all kinds of cool stuff going on here. So, Dan, set us up a little bit. Well, let's see. We we don't want to give too much away at the beginning. So I guess we can start a little bit with uh, some of our characters. The first person we meet right out of the gate is a guy by the name of Efren Hawkins. And he is, oddly enough, a pottery person. Well, he's introduced as a pottery person. As we find out, he does many other things. Uh, we have... The main, I guess, protagonist of the story, his name is John Barlow, and he is a real estate agent from Evanston, Illinois, from 1988, the far-flung future of 1988, yes. Then we have uh, some other minor characters, one by the name of Tinny Pete, who is a psychist. Not really sure what a psychist is. Do you pick up on what the, the psychist does, Bill? It's kind of like a psychologist, sort of. Yeah, except that he has the ability to hypnotize people. So there's something weird going on there. Yeah, because yeah, remember, he hypnotizes Barlow. We'll get, we'll come back around to that. And then we have a Ryan Nagana and Raji Smith. It's interesting. They all have hyphenated names. I never realized that before. Like all these people of this certain class have hyphenated names. I'm it really sure stood out is. the last time that I read it. There's a whole there's there's a whole bunch of people in the final scene, and they all have these very long, strange names where there's uh, you know multiple mixed you know backgrounds and and nationalities and heritages all all like crammed together through names. Yeah, so it seems that in the story that certain classes of people have multiple names. Some may only have one, as we find out. And John Barlow, being from 1988, has two, like we would expect. Side note, Cyril Kornbluth only had two names, and he did not have a middle name. His middle initial M is actually for his wife, Mary. So the story opens on a scene with F.M. Hawkins talking with a buyer and his personal assistant, or his secretary, as he refers to him, from Marshall Fields. And, and the scene sets up right away that there are stratifications in terms of, like, not just socioeconomics, but in terms of intelligence. It, it, it's, it seems pretty clear that there are people who are at different levels of functionality and different levels of importance in the culture. Yeah, when you just look at the way the buyer articulates, you know, what he needs and what he wants and what he thinks about the pottery, 
it's you he's like yeah this is really cool stuff man it's like super aesthetic and yeah really awesome whatever man yeah there's there's a sort of weird almost like broken english that is that we would associate with with someone who isn't intelligent but who wants to attempt to sound intelligent and doesn't realize that in trying to do so makes them sound less intelligent that that's kind of the way that's that's the pattern we're talking about here Yes, and and despite that, this guy has some type of you know important position, being a buyer for this you know huge retail company, or well, at least it used to be a major retail company back in the day. But uh, you know, why do you get the impression we get the impression that you know he's got this job, but he doesn't seem to be up to it, but he's got it anyway. Well, why is that? And his secretary is the one who actually does all of the important decision making and keeps track of things, and when the when the buyer says, oh, he's going to take this whole lot of, I forget how many dozen or, or how many crates of, of these pieces of pottery that he wants to buy. But his secretary says, oh, remember, we still have to buy plates because you spent all of our money last time on, on Mexican cactus dolls. Piggy banks. Piggy banks. That was it. Yeah. Piggy right. banks. That Decorated with on purple them. cacti. Yes. Or as they put it, very aesthetic. Aesthetic. Or aesthetic. Yeah. So there's this the the stratification of intelligence that is showing up right away in the opening scene. Yeah, and then these people jump into their automobile and take off, and they take off in this big flash of flame and smoke and glitz, and you get this idea that it's all very over the top and garish, as you know, at least that's how their modes of transportation are described. It reminds me of our conversation about Johnny Mnemonic and your descri- description of cyberpunk as sensory overload. Although this is not a cyberpunk kind of story, it, it has some of those similar things going on. So yes, they zoom off in their automobile and we and Hawkins kind of, he starts talking about some other things he's got to go on to, which is designing a skyscraper for something. And you get this idea that Hawkins has a few more jobs than just being a potter. And he's got a bunch of stuff in the kiln. And so he decides to go off on this side quest, or it seems like a side quest at the time, off into a field. And he's got his pick over his shoulder and he's looking for... He's looking Raw for materials. metal. Ox- yeah. So he's running low on copper specifically. And so he needs to be able to pick up some stuff that he can put into his metallic glazes. And in so doing, he's digging around in the dirt runs across this stainless steel plaque and this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, this crypt of this guy by the name of John, Honest John Barlow. I find it funny they call him Honest John Barlow. And he, of all things, is a real estate agent from Evanston, Illinois, from the far, far future of 1988. Right. And if it isn't clear already, we are in a far-flung futuristic version of Chicago at the time, although it's sort Way of a past post-apocalyptic decayed version. So this Honest John Barlow guy, he is in suspended animation, which was sort of accidentally induced. Nobody knew at the time how it happened. He was in the dentist's office. Something weird happened. The guy goes into suspended animation. He gets stuck in, he's on display for a while. They can't figure out what to do with him. Eventually, they ended up like burying him away for future generations to figure out. Here it is, you know, hundreds or thousands of years later. And of all people, Hawkins digs him up. It seems sort of a weird thing for them to lose track of this guy. Like they, yeah, it was, well, it a, it was been a, thousands of years. I mean, yeah, we don't like keep track of the mummies in Egypt, you know, <laughs> somebody suppose. did at some point in time. 
Yeah, they kept him in a in a vault in the biology department or in the basement of the biology department at the University of Chicago or something like that for a while. And then, yeah, as as things happen, he was forgotten. And then he winds up... Well, well not before some people stole him as a mascot for their football team or something yes. like that. Yeah. So, during, which is probably uh, why they locked him away in the first place. So weird stuff. But it, regardless, he winds up in a field and Ephraim Hawkins digs him up. And he, he, as, as he sees who he is, he's like, oh, hey, I know what this is. And I remember that, so the, the guy was the victim of accidental crossing Levin, of... Shock syndrome. Yes, or, yeah. Or they, like they, they had a, an experimental um, anesthesia or something like that for dental surgeries. And, and the drill short-circuited while they were doing their, their dental work on him. And it put him in the state of suspended animation. And so Hawkins remembers that all you have to do is give this person an injection of saline solution near some nerve and a trigeminal nerve there you go the, the trigeminal nerve and that's going to revive him and so that's exactly what he does he goes trundling back to his shop because everybody keeps a syringe in their shop and he comes back with a saline solution and gives him his injection so barlow from 1988 again real estate guy wakes up and he's like what's going on i've lost my hair i've lost my nails i'm gonna sue everybody blah 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 and a typical kind of you know jerk reaction as you might expect from a guy in that position and he is you know, immediately kind of you know he, he's trying to face what happened after him hawkins starts explaining to him it's thousands of years in the future the guy's a little bit remorseful that you know his wife got stuck with the hospital bills. He doesn't really seem to he readjusts pretty rapidly, apparently, or so it seems. Yeah, but then it kind of makes sense as the story unfolds that we learn that he was a bit of an opportunistic individual during his his original lifetime, and he was someone who was always looking to find a way to work an angle and make a buck. So that kind of mentality helps him adapt. Yeah, he's your slimy, used car salesman kind of bot guy that you know we're all sort of familiar with. He brags at one point in the story about having sold uh, realty lots in the Siberian tundra, claiming that they were commercial lots that were pre-developed on the outskirts of Kiev, and he made a bundle of money on this. Yeah, and one of the first things he talks to Hawkins about is, hey, is there money? How can I get some, you know? Hawkins is like, yeah, we have some here, have some. He gets all excited about it, or I should say Barlow does. And, you know, Hawkins is like, whatever, you know, here, have some money. I don't really care. But uh, apparently it, it seems that Hawkins really doesn't know what to do with this guy. And he suspects, and this is where we first hear about this thing called the problem, right. which is later referred to as the problem of population, which becomes very clear later. Uh, basically, as we said, Hawkins has this guy from 1988. He's woken up. He's kind of a dick. And Hawkins is like, I don't know what to do with this guy. He might have something to do with this problem we're all trying to work on, but I don't want to deal with him. I'm going to take him down to this place called Central and hand him over to some of his colleagues, and specifically to this guy by the name of Tinny Pete. And so Tinny Pete shows up, and he's got his car, and he gets... Barlow into the car and they're and they're driving along. Before we get to the to the destination for that, it, it, through Barlow's eyes, we see these new technologies, and it takes him a while to recognize or to process while he's on this trip into the city. Are they really new? Oh no, the weird 
evolution, I suppose, of, of technologies. So it, it's a car, but it's really big. Turns out that it's really big because people are really bad drivers, among other things. They're constantly gr- bumping into each other and crashing into things. But then it's also set up so that the car doesn't travel very quickly, but it is... But it's made to look like it does. The speedometer goes to 250, and it's got fans that blow extra air in your face to make it seem like you're going faster. And the dashboard is this montage of you know, super shiny chromed buttons and switches and dials and levers. And, you know, kind of like you said, sensory overload. It's like, you know, take your 1950s era Cadillac all blinged out with, you know, a hundred other things added on board. And it's sort of like that, like fins and lights and anything you can think of. Like the, the things that would make it seem cheap to us now, but the more the merrier and the more overdone, the better. And some people find that aesthetic very cool. <laughs> yes. And it's all to give you the illusion that it is bigger, stronger, faster, better than anything that's ever been before. And Barlow begins to process that. And even though the car's speedometer goes up to 250 kilometers per hour, it really only goes like, you know, 45 miles an hour, yeah. <laughs> as it turns out. So Tinny Pete takes Barlow for his ride, you know, to Chicago. And, and one of the things that Barlow does in the way he listens to the, well, it's the equivalent of the radio. He's got to wear this weird little skull cap to get it, but he's bombarded by all this advertising. And again, you, the, the advertising is about, oh, these things called Moogs and Armpito and all these just very garish and weird things that you're like, man, this just sounds like a terrible place to live. And there's a television show that there's a commercial for it. It's one of the big ones. And, and it's it's just loud and rude and overwhelming. And and Barlow is just, he's he's disturbed by the whole thing. He takes the skull cap off and he's he's just, he's really disoriented and really disturbed by the stuff that he's hearing and seeing. Yeah, even to the point where he decides he needs to escape from Tinny Pete. So they get to Chicago and Barlow's like, I'm out of here. This is just all too weird. I, I got to get, I got to go someplace. So he jumps out of the car in the middle of Chicago and starts wandering around the city. And, and as he's wandering, he just keeps finding more of these examples of the, the degradation of society. Everything is just, again, sort of you know, loud and garish and in your face. And there's no subtlety. It's all you know, advertising is practically just pornography. And it's just catering to the everything is catering to the lowest common denominator that you can imagine. The people he bumps into are rude and barely intelligible. He goes to a, a movie theater of all places and starts seeing these weird things or these advertisements for movies called like Don't Have Children and <laughs> Babies Are Terrible. Just, yeah, just these very weird names of movies. Um, he looks in, I guess he turns to the racing section and he, he looks at the horses and they're one day they're slow, one day they're fast. There's no consistency and the, everything is slower and worse than it was back where he came from. And yet somehow he's in the distant future and he can't quite put the, these two things together. Right. Because his assumption is that the, the future would be better than what he had and that what he had back in the eighties was this life where you could game the system because you could you could predict the system and that the system you know was was set up so that there was a clear designation of of excellence and then less than that and he finds that this society is is just completely random seeming that there is no standards no sense of reality or no sense of consistency val- in terms of value 
and and he really does not know how to navigate. He's just completely bewildered by everything. So eventually, he kind of he puts his head in his hand, sits down on a park bench, and and Tinny Pete, you know, walks up to him and's like, "Hey, looks like you're starting to figure out that you know the future ain't all it's cracked up to be." It, essentially, you know, Barlow figures out that hey, Tinny Pete's one of these guys. He seems to know what's going on and starts accusing him of being you know, these elite rulers and, and says, oh, you guys, you're ruling over all these people. You know, you are, you're the smart ones in your ivory towers pulling all the levers of society and all these people in society are just kind of going along with whatever you guys say. And, and Tinny uh, Pete you know, laughs. Yeah, he just shakes his head. And he's like, you have no idea. He pretty much says, dude, it's exactly the opposite of what you make the assumption that things are like here. Exactly. I mean, he's like, there's there's five billion people on the planet. There's a few million of us, and we are working like dogs, just trying to keep the lights on, trying to keep civilization from collapsing under the weight of all these idiots. And so he says, come with me, and I'll introduce you to some people who who will help you understand how things really are, and we'll try to make things clear for you. And so he finally gets Barlow into this place called Central and they begin talking with people who are in from the North Pole. And they're trying to figure out, like, okay, what is up with this Barlow guy? And is there anything that we can do to to take advantage of his displacement? And is there anything that he knows that we have forgotten about because of when he comes from? And the reason for that is they, they start asking him things like, so how many kids do you have, Barlow? And Barlow says, like, no, no, we've never none. had any kids. And they're like, you're part of the problem, you you selfish person. He right. basically says, hey, anybody in the in the past who who was prudent and had foresight and intelligence, they had either no kids or very few kids. And in the meantime, like all these other people were just breeding like crazy. And the and the, the general intelligence of the population's been declining ever since and has brought us to where we are now. Right, and so the the general state of affairs that they portray here is that educated people making educated decisions chose to not endanger the planet by reproducing more. You know, there's the whole notion uh, that that came about from the 60s and 70s after the story was written about zero population growth, you know, replacement population, where you know we I if I, if I wanted 2. to reproduce one kids. Right, I would just have en- enough that kids. That point one's kind of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> you just have enough kids to replace yourself, and therefore your, your population doesn't continue to grow. But the idea is that there's only a certain class of people who are going to be thinking that way, and they tend to be more educated. And so this plays that out to, you know, I, I, I suppose what could be conceived of as a logical conclusion. If intelligent people practice zero population growth and people with less intelligence don't, then sooner or later, intelligence becomes the minority, and that's the idea that that we're that we're operating under here, and that's the picture that they paint for Barlow. And if at this point in time anybody's thinking the movie Idiocracy, ding, 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 yes, yeah, <laughs> it's very much like that. I remember reading a book and and actually meeting the the author of the book back in college, a, a gentleman by the name of Paul Ehrlich, who had written the Population Explosion, uh, and that was a you know this this epic kind of thing in the '60s about the perils of population growth and overburdening their resources and stuff like that. And, and I can't remember what the, what the sequel to it was that he was talking about on the, on the circuit back in the late eighties, but we had him up at Michigan tech. 
No, you know what? I've got that backward. I think the original book was actually The Population Bomb, and the book that he was talking about when he came to Michigan Tech, that was The Population Explosion. I think that's what it was. That idea has been around, obviously, for a very long time, because here Kornbluth is writing about it in the 50s, and we were still talking about it in the 80s, and I actually just heard reference, it's coming back up again now. Yeah, and it's also an example of the the psychological notion of what's called the Flynn effect, which basically the Flynn effect was they said, hey, for you know many hundreds of years, we've been improving as a society. Our IQs are getting better. Our standard of living is getting better. And we expect this to continue. And this guy is kind of turning that whole thing in reverse and saying, you know, maybe that, that slope doesn't just go up. Maybe it goes down too. that. You know, we've peaked as a civilization, and from here it's a long, slow slide back down the, the Flynn curve. So to bring it back into the story, Barlow's asking questions about how we got here, and Tinny Pete and the others are explaining to him that you know, they, they did take some measures at different points in the history to try to rebalance the population when it comes to intelligence, but they failed. Yeah, and one of the solutions was they're like, well, we're just all going to hole up at the South Pole and see what happens. And it's funny, they, the guy says, well, at first, nobody really noticed a few people were missing from work, you know, but eventually after a few weeks, we had famine and war and uh, on the verge of five billion corpses. And we said, that's probably a bad idea. So they all decided to jump back up, get back to work and, and keep society running. But they tried all sorts of things. They tried, you know, propaganda against children like we saw in the movies, you know, hypnosis and sterilization and segregation and mutation and all sorts of crazy stuff. And they're like, nothing works. They're just trying to go against basic human nature to to reproduce and, and nothing they're trying is working. And so they've they've created this world. Well, this world has been created. It isn't necessarily a conscious effort that, that resulted in things the way that, that it they are. But they have a problem, the problem, and they the have... The problem of population. They have struggled with it, and, and although they keep trying, they've, they've pretty much given up at this point. And so they ask Barlow, hey, so do you have any thoughts? And Barlow, being the guy that he is, he's like, yeah, but there's going to be a price. He's like, uh, and he starts asking for all sorts of crazy stuff, right? He's like, I got an idea. He's like, have you ever heard of lemmings? And kind of describes you know, how lemmings work. And he's like, you got a whole society full of rubes, you know. It used to be that, that if you tried to sell something to people, they at least ask questions. These people, they don't question anything. Um, I, I can, you know, basically sell these guys anything, anytime I want, and because that's what he does as a, a real estate person or did as a real estate person. Right. And that's when he brags about the whole thing with Siberia. And then he's like, I've got the answer, but you got to give me something in return. And they're like, well, what do you want? And it's it turns right. out he wants everything. He wants money. He wants to be dictator for life. He wants to be like, have the history books written about him, you know, blah, 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 blah. All the things you would expect some kind of egomaniacal person to ask for. And he asks for sculptors and painters to begin creating paintings and sculptures to be distributed around the planet in his honor. It's just crazy. Yeah, so the, the, the guy's rather full of himself. But but the, the trade-off is, and they, and they basically say, you know what? Sure. Yeah, well, we'll we, we accede to all your demands. Whatever you want, Mr. Barlow. Just tell us what the answer is, and you can be dictator. You can have all the money and prestige and have your own, you know, compound at the 
South Pole to do all your stuff, whatever you want, no problem. So they give him a staff of people and he asks for advertisers and he asks for engineers and he asks for statisticians and he and he gets brewing and, and he basically has an idea and then he gets them to execute it. And there are passing references here to Hitler and genocide and all kinds of things like propaganda, that. Propaganda, propaganda yep. techniques and... And so whatever it is that he's that he's brewing up, we get the impression right away that it is it's not probably good. not good. Right. And it is nothing that the people who would have ever thought of because that that ruthlessness has kind of left society at least among the intelligence people the intelligentsia. Exactly. So the first kind of indications we see about the plan or whatever it's called is you've got these are just general people out in the in the society. They start seeing these advertisements and these references to Venus. And it's not like in your face. They're like, oh, in their favorite TV shows, like, what was it? Henry's Other Mistress. Yes. <laughs> they make reference to, oh, I was just got the mail rocket from Venus. And they go on about their day. And then there's like a brochure about, oh, take a trip to Venus and relax and Sample one of the ham trees or whatever it is they have on Venus. And it just, you know, just sort of insinuates itself, this idea of Venus being this tropical destination to get away from your cares. And, and your life will be so much better if you could go to Venus. And there's so many people are there already. And hey, why don't you come too? And so this whole thing gets set up where they, they, they do a couple of trial runs where they have a lottery and a bunch of people apply, and they get to go to Venus, and they pile them onto the ship. And because the rocket, yeah, yeah, this everything's rocket. a rocket in this story for some reason. Yeah, it's a, it's actually an airplane that they have made to look like a rocket, but it, but they keep calling it the rocket because they're trying to impress the people who are kind of knuckleheads. But they they tell them they well we can't let you see outside because there's there's a meteor storm happening. But we're gonna we're gonna transport you to Venus, and Venus looks remarkably like a tropical island on Earth. I wonder why. But they have their two week vacation. They're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Hey, there's the ham tree. Oh, and there's the soap root. Yeah, you can scrub with it. It really does make lots of bubbles. And so Venus is is Venus is awesome. Experienced as this tropical paradise, and everybody now wants to go there. Exactly. So then they they hatch plot stage part two which is or part three or whatever part it is where they they hypnotize the president into having a panic attack about venus oh what's the guy's name president something mendoza and, isn't he the blue nose yeah i don't know what that means but so he is he's a it must be like blue remember the whole blue blooded aristocrat oh, kind of thing that could be like a blue nose oh that's that's possible. like their insult for people i don't know where that yeah. came from well, he used to be the president, and now he's just part of the legislation. And and they hypnotize him to have this to to deliver this sort of panic-stricken diatribe to their to their whatever their their governing body is. Their constituents. Yeah. So, and as he's at the podium, he's talking about how Venus is this uncharted paradise, and we need America to take it over, or we need America to colonize it, and we need to send our best people up there. And we have to have a plan because if we don't do it, then the Mexicans and the Chinese and everybody else are going to, they're going to colonize it and we're going to miss out. And they're more ruthless than us. So if we don't get there first, then they're going to, they're going to be mean and, and, and we're going to lose out. 
Yeah, and we got to deconstruct cities and take them apart to get the raw material to build the rockets to send all these people there. And so they kind of get this fever of American patriotism and everyone's behind this project to get as many Americans to Venus as fast as they possibly can. Yeah, and it feels very much like, you know, the the push to war that happened in the United States and, well, in, in all over the Earth as, as World War II was happening. And, of course, this is written and published not too long after the conclusion of World War II. So, like, that kind of— Like so many of these stories? Absolutely. You know, that, and that, that kind of thing is, is very much a part of it. And so we now have a different kind of space race. It's the race to Venus— and they have another lottery. Well, it's it's all rigged, but and the city of Los Angeles is the winner, so to speak, of this lottery. And Los Angeles is launched into space in a bunch of rockets that they make from taking buildings apart and rebuilding them into rockets. And they launch a hundred thousand people from the city of Los Angeles off to Venus. Yep. Now, of course, other countries looking at this, going, "Oh my God, we can't let's let the Americans be on board doing this. We got to do the same thing." So as you just said, you get the Russians and the Chinese and the Mexicans and Canadians and all the countries of the earth. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, we can't be behind. Let's all do the same thing and launch as many of our people into space to Venus as possible to make sure it's not taken over by the Americans. And they make this reference to the fact that they're on this massive rocket building program. And they make this key little reference that said they make all these rockets. They weren't very good, but they didn't have to be, which kind of leads you to believe, where did all these rockets go? Yeah. And they're counting on people needing or wanting to follow. And that's exactly what happens. So as city after city after city gets launched into space, and people have all of this room, and they start actually, instead of getting, it's the reverse of claustrophobia. They, they feel like they've got too much room and they're missing their family members. And so more and more and more people want to go. And they just, this mass... The diaspora. There you go. And, and There's all, a word for you. All of those people are just shot into space. Oh, and meanwhile, of course, the people that are back on Earth are getting letters and communications from the people that have gone to Venus talking about how great it is and how wonderful a time they're having, which, of course, encourages them to go even more. But all of them are fake. They're being written by the people who are this, this whole crew of people who are just perpetuating the lie. And then, of course, an amusing, ironic twist of fate. The politicians are like, oh, crap, all our constituents have flown to Venus. We got to get there, too. So all the politicians start scrambling to say, let's get ourselves on the next rocket to Venus so we can follow them. You know, we're nothing without our, our constituents. So the project has been such an incredible success that Barlow is hanging around gloating and, and basking in the glory of, of his, his plot having worked. And then he's sitting at his desk one day, and he's going through some paperwork, and he goes, hey, what's this? And he realizes that somebody has launched some sort of a venture in, within the context of, of his office, but he didn't okay it. And he's wondering what the secret project is, and he confronts his main statistician, this guy, Roggy Smith, or Rogie Smith. Oh, and, and by the way, just in case anybody hasn't figured it out, the rockets never really went to Venus. They just kind of went away. somewhere. Yeah. And the people on the rockets didn't last very long. Right. So we're actually talking about a planetary systemic genocide. Fun. Like I said, a little cynical. So, so wrap, this, wrap the story up for us, Bill, with the, the final scene. So the statistician comes in and, and Barlow's yelling at him. He's like, what is, what is this secret project? He's like, yeah, come on with me. I'll show you. 
and they walk Barlow into a room that is just beneath the surface of the pole, and there's a there's a solo rocket ship sitting there, and 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 Barlow's like, "What's this?" and and they grab him by his arms, and there's a whole bunch of people here, and it's all of the people on his staff who who've been like making everything possible for him and and like keeping him happy while he's executing this this grand plan. They grab onto him, they walk him to the ship, and they toss him in, and they send it off into space. That is his fate. He's on a one-way trip on a rocket that doesn't work very well. To join all the people that he orchestrated going to the same place. So as he's, as he's going along, I'll, I'll read a little passage from it. So the door was closed. Acceleration slammed Barlow cruelly to the metal floor. Something broke and warm, wet stuff, salty tasting, ran from his mouth to his chin. Arctic sunlight through a port suddenly became a fierce lancet stabbing at his eyes. He was out of the atmosphere. Lying twisted and broken under the acceleration, Barlow realized that some things had not changed. That Jack Ketch was never asked to dinner, however many shillings you paid him to do your dirty work. That murder will out. That crime pays only temporarily. The last thing he learned was that death is the end of pain. And that is the end of the story. Yay! Population genocide! So what a brutal, brutal story. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, you know, part of the question, which this never really explores, where do we go on from here, right? You've got the you've got the intelligentsia of the world, right, who have just executed this grand plan. They've gotten rid of all the people they don't like. The earth is theirs to do as they please. Yeah, and the the theory is that, of course, now everything is going to be hunky dory for the you know until the end of time. It's hard to say from the story if they got rid of everybody of lower intelligence or if they just got rid of enough well, of at them least that they can brought try the population to, yeah. down to the point where it's at least manageable, and they can assume their I guess quote unquote rightful place as the you know I, I, I don't know if they want to if they really want to be the rulers of society or. They've just been supporting society so long that they're just like, God, I need a freaking break here, you know? Yeah, it's clear that they have been serving the whims of people that they don't respect and don't appreciate and that they're tired of that and something needs to change. But there's really no plan for what's going to happen afterward, you know? Right. Okay, like, hey, we've, we've got this done. We've gotten rid of, you know, Barlow, who's the last guy... Even though he came up with the entire plan, we've shot him off into space because we don't want his kind around either. So what do we do now? You know, and the, of course, the story is completely silent as to what happens after that, except the the, you know, the impression one gets is it's a quote unquote good thing that they've done all this. But, you know, is it really? Uh, again, you see all the references to propaganda techniques, the references to, you know, as we mentioned earlier, they're getting all these fake letters to encourage people to sign up and go into space, essentially to die as well. So it is kind of a grim story, you know, at that level. And they equate Barlow to Hitler. He uses Hitler's techniques of propaganda, certainly, to manipulate the population. Well, it's, I think so. it's, it's Raggy Smith who's talking to him and says, you know, we never would have thought of that Hitler stuff. So, like, you're, like, unique in, in your ability to bring that kind of stuff to us because we wouldn't have thought that way. You know, but, but clearly, so the, the, the reference, by the way, to Jack Ketch is to this particularly, well, it's brutal or clumsy, take your pick, but an executioner from the 1600s, the late 1600s, who was famous for botched executions, 
like literally one of the people that he that he was charged with killing it took him multiple chops of his axe to kill the person and it was so gruesome that people were were not entertained as they usually were by such things and odd to think of people being entertained by that i suppose oh hey remember people would show up for hangings all the time oh yeah public execution i mean it was the thing to do on a saturday night oh yeah afternoon i don't know when they actually did these things or morning we don't have them anymore, at least not in our country. So Take that's... a good cup of coffee and an execution <laughs> to get your day started. That's right. Or, you know, you enjoy your beer with a with a good beheading. There's this whole notion of, you know, a, a person being paid handsomely to do the dirty work that other people are not willing to do, even when it's brutal. But then at some point, that executioner has, has worn out their welcome and they have to get rid of him as well because they really don't want that element around. Now, let's be fair. Douglas Adams did the same thing in the restaurant. Was it, wait, I'm not sure which book it was in. I think it was the restaurant at the end of the universe where they made reference to launching all of the, you know, quote unquote, useless people, the middlemen, the telephone sanitizers, and the, you know, people who added no value into society. They put them on ships and launched them off into space as well. So I can't think of the name of the, of the ship. It was like the something arc. I'd have to go look it back up again. Oh, you know what? But it was the the Golga Frenchian Ark. As he types frantically into Google. And yes, Wikipedia saves the day once again. I just happened to have <laughs> a page the answer. up that was, that was like, yeah, now that you said it, I've, I, I need to know. <laughs> well, that was the, well, that was because it was from the, the, the Golga Frenchians were the, the, that was the name of the species. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was their Ark. It's like the Earthling Ark. So. Yeah. But the idea being that, that you're getting rid of people that, that are that you don't need around or don't want around anymore. Maybe not quite as grim as this story because they weren't, <laughs> well, they were launching him to a planet, which happened to be Earth. But that's another story. Was it Earth before or after it was destroyed? I mean, you know what I mean? Was oh, it, well before. It was yeah. prehistoric Earth. And that's oh, why the descendants right. became the, the modern, which screwed up the whole experiment. But again, that's another story. I, it has been a long time since I have read that one. So, so getting back to uh, the marching morons, right? The the story we're actually supposed <laughs> to be talking about. It's interesting that you know one of the things about this story is back in the nineteen fifties, there was actually people who, you know, again coming out of World War II, the rise of science and technology and the uh, academic intelligentsia. There was some real fear that these people were actually going to start running society. And, you know, kind of taking over things and saying, you know, we're the elite, the important, the educated, and we're going to start running things. So in a way, what Kornbluth did when he wrote this story was it was kind of the antithesis to that sort of golden dream of the meritocracy. It was sort of like a, hey, you know, here's a future society where, you know, you're not in charge. And in fact, you're the exact opposite. You know, it's a very, it's very juvenilian satire. Well, and it's that notion that there might be a single quality or characteristic that gives people the right or the responsibility to claim authority over everybody else and to be the voice or at least, you know, the steering philosophy for how things ought to be. And we've tried all kinds of experiments throughout human history with how we're going to do that and who we're going to prop up at the top. And none of them really work all that well, do they, Dan? (laughs) Well, they certainly do not. There seem to be problems with anything we come up with. 
And in a way, you know, it's even kind of laughable, right? I mean, you look at the society we have now where it's almost, you know, people almost make fun of you if you have too much education. You know, you're scorned in some places if you got more than a high school education. It's like, oh, he went to college? (laughs) What do you know, you know? It's certainly true that right now we're living through a a, a time here with the pandemic where we have a mistrust of experts. And there's a whole variety of reasons for that. We we could trace that history, but it's a much bigger thing and, and not necessarily appropriate to this podcast to do so. Some valid, some not valid. Eh, so oh yeah, that's we'll right. Leave it at that. This whole notion that that expertise or that intelligence might be questioned or that it might not be valued, I mean, that that's certainly a, a very real thing. And, and we see the impact of that kind of thinking or that lack of thinking, I suppose, in our daily lives right now when it comes to questioning science around the pandemic. You know, what good is a mask? What good is a vaccine? You know, there's there's a whole lot of of mistrust of that kind of stuff. Well, again, you know, some people would say, what what good is an education? I mean, do you really need an education to get ahead in society nowadays? I mean, that for a long time, that was the case. We now have a society where you don't necessarily need to have an education to do a lot of things where you can make a whole lot of money. And in some places, you can make a lot more money by not being educated, you know? Well, and that's exactly where I was going to go with that, is that when we, we have a a meritocracy in a way that where merit is is measured in in money and money if you can make a lot of money without an education that's a good thing or well now, however you can make a lot of money is a good thing to be fair right money power and influence have always been kind of the standards by which we held people and oh, a certainly. lot of times how you got any of those things is sort of immaterial as long as you have them you are kind of the creme de la creme of society I mean, look at how look at how educated people are treated in Waterworld, and how educated people are treated in Mad Max, right? They're almost like you know, sort of commodities to be traded around. Oh, I I got a guy who knows how to fix a diesel engine. You know, I got a guy who knows how to fix a walkie-talkie, and it helps me keep my my place in the post apocalyptic uh, sorry the post apocalyptic society. Right. They basically become the servants of the people who have power through brute force or through other means, whatever that might mean. It's it's what has led to uh, me and some of the people that I hang with joking that we want to make T-shirts for the apocalypse. It says, don't kill me, I'm a home brewer, because there's always seems to be bad alcohol and post-apocalyptic stuff. So, you know, a home brewer is going to be a super valuable person because they can keep drinking alive. Distillery is the key to the future. There we go. So some expertise is valuable. <laughs> so our expertise... Although it may not be particularly valuable, we should probably capitalize on it and look a little bit more at some of the whole, uh, that section of the show where we talk about the the sort of dated and out of place elements here. And to me, it's hard to say because in some ways I say this suffers a lot from being dated and I'm not sure why. Um, You know, part of it is some of the things they reference, like, you know, Wambo Zambo comics and Marshall Fields and... The guy has got five-digit phone numbers that he wants to dial to reach his wife, right? You get newspapers for a dime and candies for a quarter. So, But in some ways, you have Cornbluth trying to take, you know, I guess from our perspective, what we would consider a simple 1950s society and make it even more simple to reflect that intelligence has devolved, right? right. So I'm like, is it seem dated and simplistic because of the language he's using to make his future society seem simplistic, or is it really dated? It's hard for me to figure that out. That's a good point, because I I think his attempt to show 
like the 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 de the de evolution of taste and the de evolution of intelligence comes across as this weird crude reinvention of everything that would have been common to him in his day and so it's sort of deliberately anachronistic if you want to put it that way it's temporarily trapped but again i mean some of the things like you know john barlow being from 1988 right you know that's obviously kind of a little bit dated but um but yeah, so that's why I said the the when I read the story, it seems to suffer from being dated. But again, I'm not sure how much of it is it is actually dated, and how much is just the writing style trying to make it seem like society has devolved to the point where the prose seems degraded. Yeah, it's kind of hard to talk sense. about those things because of of his the the way that he resituates or recontextualizes societal details for his purposes. Like it it, it makes it kind of free from the time stream in a way because it's really stuck in a particular time stream. It's it's a weird little anomaly. Yeah, so speaking of the, speaking of the time stream, right, that we mentioned earlier, The Little Black Bag, which was another one of Cornblue's very popular stories. The Little Black Bag that was sent back to, well, I guess what we would call the present, was actually an artifact that was created by these very intelligent people in the future, in the Marching Morons, to help keep people alive because the little black bag was so advanced that even a moron could use it and be a doctor in this society of the marching morons. And that's one of the artifacts that got sent back in time, which became the little black bag. So even though the stories, they have no common characters, they have no common references, though they are tied together in a way. Interesting that he didn't slip in a reference in the marching morons to time travel then. Knowing that he was making that. I'm not sure which one he wrote first, whether it was this oh, one or... Point. Yeah, I'd have to see the publication dates of both of them. Yeah. Well, one of our other rituals that we have concocted here at TBD is our scale of, hmm, whoa, and what the fuck. So, Dan, where does this fall on the spectrum for you? Ooh, that's a tough one. It's almost a combination of all three, depending on what part of the story you're going to look at. Yeah, in fact, uh, I almost tipped my own hand by saying, uh, how would we how would we scale this Venn diagram here, Dan? <laughs> yeah, it's an intersection of all three. Ooh, a Venn diagram. I hadn't thought about doing that for any of these stories. They don't translate well into uh, podcast format, though. No, this is true. It's got some hmm, it's got some whoa, and it's got some what the fuck. So, you know, on all three scales, I'd say it almost it's it's equal across all three categories. Yeah, I'm with you there. That there there are weird things that are going on. There are interesting postulates of of thinking that are that are posed to us. And yeah, it's it's a story clearly that a lot of people have decided is worth reading. Like I said, it was voted among the you know in the second round of of the best science fiction stories of all time. So clearly it is well-respected and well-regarded. Actually, I think the little black bag made the first 15, and then this one made the second 15, which is pretty amazing for him to get two in that set. So that's kind of cool. Especially since Cornbluth, he was only 34 years old when he died. So he was out around for a long time. Yeah, he was really prolific for a very short period of time, sort of like the Beatles. And the dude never brushed his teeth. Yeah, that was a weird detail. Apparently his teeth turned green and he would hold his hands over his face when he talked. Now, how some dude like that gets married and makes his wife's name his middle initial, like we talked about earlier, I don't know. But hey, science fiction people, what can you say? 
it was a different time. Yeah, well, speaking of time, our next story has a lot of it, and millions of years, as a matter of fact. And Bill, what is it? We'll be talking about the story Pots by C.J. Cherry. So look it up, check it out, give it a read, and whatever else you do, make sure you come on back. Thank you.